Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. I may have said this last episode, but in case I didn't, Happy New Year! And as the calendar has flipped from 2019 to 2020, I think this is as good a time as any to take some time to reassess and restock and perhaps resolve. Yes, it's time to talk once again about New Year's resolutions. I don't always go in for these, but you know what? The way this year is already heading, I think we could all use some easy wins. So much in the spirit of when you make a list, having the first item on the list be make list so that as soon as you're done, you can cross it off. I would like to suggest that this year, make your first New Year's resolution to make a New Year's resolution. That way you get to cross it right off the list. I think. I'm not entirely sure if resolving to resolve counts as resolving. It gets into a whole weird Ouroboros thing that I just can't wrap my brain around right now. So let's try making another easy one. After all, the whole point of resolution is that they're easy. Just look at the root word. It's re and solve. You're solving a problem that's already been solved. What could be easier than that? So let's look at last year and re-solve a problem that we've already addressed. Last year, I resolved to not talk about bears in these intros. And looking back at my track record, I think I succeeded. I did not talk about bears. In at least 30 of the 52 intros that I did last year. Pretty good. So I think this year I'm going to stick with the same resolution. I'm going to re-solve this issue by not talking about bears in 2020. Bears. Oh, fuck. Well, that's another year down the drain. Let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tuhey. Corey's not a musical fan. He doesn't enjoy the music man. He would shout cries of woe if forced to attend Chicago. He doesn't like Assassin's Prolly, or Rent, 80's Town, or Hello Dolly. And well, he'd poo poo Miz, he would surely enjoy this synopsis. Thanks, Devin. I said poo-poo kind of funny there. <laughs> I guess funnier. It's always funny to say poo-poo. New Teen Titans, Volume 2, Number 11, August 1985. Love Story, Part 2. Written by Marv Wolfman, drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, inked by Romeo Tangal, lettered by John Costanza, colored by Adrienne Roy, and edited as such by Marv Wolfman. Teen Titan Roll Call, Jericho, Cole, Nightwing, Starfire, Wonder Girl, Beast Boy, and Cyborg. Previously in the New Teen Titans. Our titular teenagers returned from a tumultuous time atop Mount Olympus where they had recently survived a skirmish involving the entire Greek pantheon. 
In addition to mixing it up with a medley of mythological monsters, the Titans received the surprising news that their old pal, and sometimes teammate Lilith, was actually a Greek goddess. Good for her! Lilith decided to stay on Olympus with her deific extended family. The occasionally intuitive Auburn Trest ingenue bid the Titans and Zack Wingman, the amnesiac alien angel she had been flirting with, a fond farewell. Bye, Lilith! During their celestial scuffle, the gang had met a teenaged girl with nonsensical crystal powers named Cole Weathers, who sadly was unrelated to the actor Carl Weathers. Cole had been kidnapped by Lilith's evil birth mother and forced to use her powers to imprison the malevolent matriarch's enemies. When our heroes headed back to Earth, Cole decided to tag along. When they arrived home, Zack Wingman decided that he needed to take some time away from the Titans to pose dramatically and whine about how much he missed Lilith. He headed back to his Ewok treehouse in Pendleton, Oregon, presumably to perfect his moping. Bye, Zack Wingman! The remaining Titans went out for a fancy lunch. In addition to their meals, the gang also consumed a heaping helping of exposition, dished up by Cole. The adorable abductee disclosed that her parents, Abel and Marilyn Weathers, were scientists who helped develop Nonsensium, the fictional nonsense element sometimes called Prometheum that can do pretty much anything. When they realized that Nonsensium might be used as a weapon, Abe and Marilyn were horrified and dedicated themselves to figuring out a way for humans to survive any potential apocalypse their creation might unleash. They began researching accelerated evolution and experimenting on their daughter, which is how Cole got her crystal powers. Then two years ago, she got kidnapped by Lilith's mom and has been living in Greek myths ever since. Good to know. After lunch, the gang headed to their respective homes. Cole agreed to stay the night with Jericho and look for her parents in the morning. When Beast Boy got home, he learned that his stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America, was dying. Bummer. Cyborg tried to call his off-again, off-again love interest Sarah Sims, but unbeknownst to the mostly metal Marvel, Sarah was out on a date with her new boyfriend, Gary. After some quick arithmetic assured her that she was 18, Cole asked Jericho if he'd like to have sex with her. The mutton-chop mutant declined the adolescent abductee's amorous advances, and the two stayed up all night talking. The next morning, as agreed, they headed upstate to Cole's parents' last known address. When they arrived at their destination, they received a less-than-warm reception from a disheveled Abe Weathers, who attempted to slam the door in his daughter's face. Jericho used his creepy powers to force Cole's discourteous dad to let them in the house, but once inside, they soon found the reason for Abe's inhospitable attitude. The basement of the house was filled with hideously mutated people that Abe had chained up and experimented upon. Gadzooks! How will Jericho and Cole respond to this menagerie of manacled mutants? Is Cole's mother also a rude jerk? And how will Beast Boy react to the news of his stepdad's imminent demise? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... By running away? No, she actually seems pretty chill. For a giant grasshopper. And... Poorly. Cole and Jericho flee from the Weathers' estate and head back to the city. Joey seems significantly more freaked out by what they have just witnessed than Cole does. I mean, she's not stoked that her dad is turning people he presumably kidnapped into monsters, but I guess she saw some pretty messed up stuff while she was hanging out with the Greek gods and learned to take weird shit in stride. She's like, Hey Joe, you seem pretty stressed out. You want to have sex? Huh. I know being attacked by my father and his army of monsters doesn't usually put me in the mood, but maybe she picked up her approach to problem-solving from watching Zeus. Joey declines her offer. Cole changes tack and is like, 
Then how's about you tell me how you lost your ability to speak? Maybe that'll cheer you up. Interesting approach. Joe signs, Oh, pretty typical story. International terrorists slit my throat while my mom watched due to my dad's hubris. No big deal. Mostly it just sucked that both my parents and my older brother bullied me and insisted that I train in fighting and gun shooting since I was three. I mean, I got pretty good at all that stuff, but they were all disappointed that what I really wanted to do was art and music. My mom kind of came around eventually, but she still doesn't really get it. Anyway, my brother eviled himself to death trying to kill my friends, and I think my dad's in super jail or something? Tough to keep track of. Cole replies, Wow, that's rough. Do you want to have sex about it? Joe's like, Again? No thank you. Back at his palatial estate in the East Hamptons, Beast Boy searches the mansion for his stepdad, Steve Dayton, the fifth richest and therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America. Gar has just learned that Steve is dying and wants to get a few things off his chest. He eventually locates the apparently terminally ill billionaire in one of his many private offices. Gar approaches Steve and is like, What the fuck, Steve? Where do you get off dying? Did you even think how that's going to affect me, you selfish jerk? Steve is understandably perturbed by his son's behavior and responds, Mind your own business and get the fuck out of here. I'm too busy dying to deal with your teenagery bullshit. Gar turns into an angry bunny and storms out of the room. So, that went well. Meanwhile, back in the city, Cyborg's off again, off again, again, love interest, but not really, Sarah Sims heads out on a date with her new boyfriend, Gary. Soon after she leaves, Cyborg knocks on her door with a bouquet of flowers and a note professing his affection. When he realizes she isn't home, he leaves the bouquet on her doorstep and congratulates himself on finally expressing his feelings. Dude, maybe put away that self-back-patting robo-extension for your arm for just a second, because I'm not sure expressing yourself horticulturally in absentia is the best way to convey the depths of your emotions. As if to illustrate that point, a few minutes after Vic departs, a new wave guy with aggressively pleated orange pants swipes the flowers off the doorstep, tosses the note, and announces his intention to give them to his girlfriend. Lucky lady. Upstate in his secluded laboratory, Abe Weathers soliloquizes to his creations about how much he loves his daughter and how bummed out he was to chase her away. He felt like he had to do it because he was worried that she wouldn't understand that he's been using nonsensium to turn humans into silicon and insect hybrids who will be able to survive a nuclear war. A giant grasshopper lady, well, giant for a grasshopper, normal sized for a lady, consoles Abe and tells him that he's doing the right thing. It's Marilyn, Cole's mom. If Marilyn employs the same emotional problem-solving tactics as her daughter, then I, for one, am extremely grateful that we abruptly cut to a different scene. The next day, at the construction site for the new Titans Tower, Cole and Jericho fill the other Titans in on what they witnessed the other day at Abe Weathers' lab. The gang decides to take a break from instructing the engineers to use a more load-bearing font for their new giant T-shaped building, and heads north to investigate. When they arrive at the Weathers' house, the Titans are greeted by a horde of vaguely humanoid giant insects who aggressively secrete various goos at them. Our post-pubescent protagonists were unprepared for this unsettling development and are soon overwhelmed by their insectoid antagonists. At the behest of the Weathers, the Titans are dragged into the house and placed in a big ol' high-tech aquarium filled with scientific nonsense fluid. 
Abel explains to his daughter that the goo will transform our titular teenagers into hideous creatures who will be capable of surviving a nuclear war. Cole counters that turning people into monsters is a pretty fucked up thing to do, regardless of whether or not it is done for their own good. Also, probably worth pointing out that unlike everyone else in his household, Abel is still sporting a traditional number of limbs and has a conventionally human appearance, so maybe he's not the true believer he's portraying himself as. The intergenerational debate as to whether or not involuntarily mutating people is a nice thing to do is interrupted when Jericho manages to make eye contact with Marilyn through the glass of the science aquarium and takes over her weird insect body. Cole takes advantage of this distraction to send a shard of crystal through the glass of the Titan's imprisoning tank and frees the rest of the young heroes. Hooray! A bug basement brawl breaks out. The Titans hold their own for a minute, but then Abel busts out his secret store of nonsensium and seals all of the heroes except for Jericho and Cole behind a wall of nonsense that gets stronger the harder they hit it. Handy stuff, that nonsensium. Then Abe's bug-looking minions engulf Joe, and Cole goes back to arguing with her dad. Unfortunately, Abel Weathers is quite intractable. He backhands his daughter and turns on some gas jets that will trigger the final stage in the evolution of he and his bug people. He says that Cole will thank him when the nuclear Armageddon begins. That seems unlikely. She's probably going to be pretty busy right about then. Jericho uses his power to jump into Marilyn's body again. Cole and her dad continue to argue until Marilyn pipes up and is like, Abe, knock it off. Cole and her buddies don't want to become monsters and live through World War III. Just let them go. It's a little unclear at this point whether it's actually Marilyn talking or if it's Jericho speaking through her bug body, but either way, Abe is like, gee, I never looked at it that way. All right, get out of here, you scamps. Here's a couple of bucks for some pizza. Me and your mom and these bug guys are going to stay in here and breathe this mutagenic gas, but you guys have fun dying of radiation in the post-apocalyptic nightmare that I'm sure is coming. Love you. Cole is like, Love you too, Mom and Dad. Bye! And with that, she and the rest of the Titans leave the house as it fills with a noxious pink gas. A few minutes later, the house explodes. At first, it seems as though everyone inside must have died in the explosion, but after a few seconds, a cavalcade of bugs starts streaming out of the wreckage like it was a silver shamrock mask from the end of Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. I guess it was Abe's plan all along to turn everyone from bug people into regular old bugs. The weird thing is, Abel himself seemed to skip the whole hybrid stage and go straight from all the way human to all the way bug. So I guess the whole turning people into monstrous humanoid abominations was just for shits and giggles? I bet he and Marilyn are going to have some awkward discussions about that. Or... Maybe that's why he waited to bring it up until neither one of them had a mouth. The Titans walk slowly away from the smoldering hole in the ground, still teeming with formerly human insects, and reflect on the fact that they just had a really weird day. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Cory. Cory, how are you doing? I am doing pretty, pretty good. I vacuumed my house a lot earlier. That sounds like a worthwhile endeavor. Well, it's satisfying, you know. Were you trying to 
cleanse it from the metaphoric stench of the movie that we watched there the other night? Oh, that is not possible. (laughs) I know, I just didn't know if it was a subconscious thing. Let's get all this horse hair, pony hair, whatever, out. So last night, Corey and I and our friend Lee got together and watched the movie A Talking Pony, the sequel to A Talking Cat, and... It is maybe the worst movie I've ever seen. It is the worst movie I've ever seen, and also in the way that it was fun that we were there for each other going through that process. Yes. It was a bonding experience. Mm -hmm. We made it through. Yeah, but that was the only good thing about it. We're like foxhole buddies now. It wasn't even a good, bad, you know? I think it was if you take out the... Did we work out that it was 40 minutes of it was looped footage of a horse walking around a yard? Yeah, so there's like a two-minute thing of a horse walking around with maybe 30 seconds of the horse getting brushed. Mm -hmm. That just gets looped back-to-back for more than half the movie. Yeah, it's an experience. I would recommend watching it, but fast-forward over those parts. Man, I know we don't have Beholder Be Gone for this, but I'm going to say to all the listeners out there... Straight Be Gone. Straight Be Gone. Don't do it. Don't listen to Hub. I'm giving it a modified Behold, but be prepared to skip over the stock footage of a horse walking around a yard and know that that is going to be more than half the movie. It really did seem like they shot the interstitial bits of a porno, but with no sex. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, oh shit, we need to do something to fill out the sex scenes. And then just use stock footage of a horse walking around a yard. Also, worth noting, there is no actual pony in the movie. It is a horse who, when he starts talking, at one point mentions that when he was younger he used to be a pony. Which I'm pretty sure is not how horses work. I don't think so either. Whatever you do, don't watch it alone. No! Have somebody spotting you while mm-hmm. you watch this. Yeah. Safety first. You need a good set and setting to get through that trip. It's true. You want to talk about a comic book? (laughs) This comic was so much better than that movie. Oh my god. So what did you think about this comic book? I enjoyed it. I felt it was one of the more straightforward wrapping up of an arc and beginning kind of of a... How do you call it when you're... So they're introducing this new character to ostensibly become part of the team. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's happening, and that's exciting. Sure. And it wraps up her sort of backstory, I guess. Yeah, it's a really straightforward issue. It's fine. I think it's good. I think it's well done. But I think this is maybe the least overall exciting issue that we've had since the relaunch of it as New Teen Titans Volume 2. I don't know. It was good, but it didn't really generate a ton of excitement for me. I felt it was probably the most Cold War issue that we've read. There was a solid two pages of dialogue that was just all about the the zeitgeist at the time of being totally terrified of nuclear annihilation. Yeah, and that's the era of Cold War that I remember from being a kid. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this. This issue that New Teen Titans has now gotten to the point where this comic was aimed pretty much at you. Like, you would have been around 11, I think, when this came out, right? And, I mean, I think that's a a little bit young for who it's marketed for, but it's same ballpark, basically. And, yeah, I was younger when that came out, but it rang very familiar Mm -hmm. to the specific late Cold War feeling that I remember from my youth. 
I remember being a really little kid, I think probably about four, and asking my mom who Ronald Reagan was. And her answer was, he's a very bad man who wants to blow up the planet. Wow. And, you know, I don't think she was necessarily wrong. Not necessarily what I would tell a four-year-old. But that was the general feeling that I remember growing up with. And the way that it is addressed in here is also the way that I feel like it was addressed for the most part in the media at the time, which is, hey, here's the general background of what's happening right now. And we think it's bad, but without getting into any blame or any specifics about it. Mm -hmm. Like it definitely deals with political topics in a fairly apolitical way. Yeah. it And it also echoes a lot of what I remember being these kind of, I, I think we've talked about it a little bit on the show before, but the straight-to-video market was rife with post-apocalyptic action movies. Yeah. And this, like, this idea of you've got this brilliant scientist who's just been driven completely bonkers by the stresses of, you know, being worried about the world blowing up. Yeah, although within the comic, it kind of flips from this guy is out of control and has to be stopped to, by the end of the comic, taking almost the stance of, yeah, well, you know, maybe he's right. Let him do his thing. Which was a little bit jarring for me reading it because it seemed very much a flip-flop of what had been established in the previous issue and the beginning of this one and didn't really sync up in some kind of important ways. Like the fact that at the end of the last issue, a lot of his creations seemed to be chained up and it was implicit if not made explicit that he had maybe kidnapped or acquired these people and experimented on them in a very invasive and fairly torturous way and that's kind of glossed over at the end here one of the other ways that that comes up is he tells cole that you know i did this all for you and i did this because i love you and because i want you to stay with us and live in this new world that i'll create where we're all i guess happy insects Mm-hmm. Whereas in the last issue, when she shows up at his door, he tells her to get out and he never wants to see her again and hits her. And yeah, we're supposed to, I think, get more the feeling in this one that he's misguided, but his heart's in the right place and maybe he's not really wrong. It was very much of a flip flop in, in a jarring way, for sure. Because, yeah, he's such a jerk to Cole in the last issue. And then this issue, the way they try and justify it is the way that I read it was him being like, I really don't want her to know that I turned mom, her mom into a bug. Yeah. Because that would be hard on her. It's very understanding of That's him. why I slapped her in the face and said never come back. It was for her own it was good. love. Yeah. Because her mom totally wants to be a bug. Her mom loves being a bug. Couldn't get enough of that. Got this cool thorax. Oh, Marilyn. Uh, I mean, nice looking bug lady, I guess. Well designed. Sure. One of the things that first struck me about this issue is the cover. It reminds me so much of the video box cover for the first Swamp Thing movie. Oh, yeah. There's a creature who looks like I described him in the synopsis of the last issue as like the off-brand Halloween costume version of Swamp Thing that would probably be called, like, Bog Object or something. <laughs> but it's him carrying an unconscious Nightwing. So if you did, like, a one-for-one -one swap, Nightwing would be playing the Adrienne Barbeau 
mm-hmm. roll in the video box cover away from a crumbling gothic manor. And it looks very, very Swamp Thing. And this is something that's come up with the covers before. I think part of that is a miscommunication about coloring. Mm. Because inside the comic book, that same creature is orange. Which mm-hmm. makes it a much less confusing Swamp Thingy look. Especially because the creatures are all described as being crystalline insect and silicon. And this guy's got way more of a vegetable Cthulhu vibe. And so do a lot of the creatures inside the book. What did you think of the, the creatures in this? Man, creepy. I, the thing, I, okay, so Titans are heroes. They deal with difficult situations all the time. Mm-hmm. I was completely boggled at how all of them, especially Donna, were keeping their cool when they were covered with insect-type critters that were trying to eat and kill them, ostensibly biting them, that were the size of cats up to, like, Large horses. Humans. Yeah. Oh, horses. Yeah, you're right. Can you think of anything creepier? That is the stuff of nightmares. I would rather not try to think of anything creepier than that. It is completely justifiable that Jericho's reaction is abject terror. Yeah, he seems to be the only one who I felt had a reasonable, <laughs> like, reaction. He's just like, ah, this is awful. Yeah, everybody else is like, oh, we gotta try and beat them up. Come on, guys. Let's go. Keep it together. Titans, go. No, and I appreciated that characterization of Jericho. It made him seem much more human to me than, for the most part, the other Titans. What did you think of Cole's depiction in this, both her attitude and her powers? Well, the powers, I think we talked about it a little bit before. I have the same frustration with those as I do with magnetism and and other it-can-do-anything powers. Yeah, I had definitely that in my notes, just like, are crystals the new magnets? Not just in New Age culture, but in this book specifically. And that comes up to an extent. Again, I think there is a slight miscommunication between the cover and the interior. Because on the cover, she has made a little crystal disc that she is floating around on. And inside the comic book, she kind of has that. But it is being towed by Wonder Girl's lasso. Mm -hmm. Which makes it seem that more she's created like some kind of an aerial water skiing disc. Mm -hmm. Like a Kit Cloud Kicker from Tailspin. Which I like a lot better. Mm -hmm. The other thing that it shows her doing is making like an Iceman style crystal slide for her to get around town. Which I just could not get out of my head. What are they going to do with that shit? It's already been established she can't undo it when she makes crystals. Are there just city employees following her around just being like... Oh, fucking come on. Seriously? That is a good point. It's a very pretty crystalline structure, but I'm sure it gets in the way of things like traffic. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking the same thing with Iceman uh, when we when I would watch, like, The Amazing Spider-Man and his friends as a kid and mm-hmm. then later read the X-Men comic books, where it's like, oh, man, yeah, that ice slide is cool, but come on, that's got to disrupt traffic and really the whole city. But that at least is ice, so theoretically it will melt at some point. This crystal, there's nothing they can do with it. Very frustrating. Yeah, so that was my take on on her powers. Backstory-wise, I don't know. I feel like she'd be a little more troubled in the way that she... She seems pretty okay, despite all the stuff that she's been through. Very resilient. I, I mean, the trauma that she suffered, both on Olympus, she makes hints at the fact that some fucked up shit went down on Olympus. 
Yeah, because, so, okay, the dad's thing with the super creepy critters and all of that. And she's like, yeah, mm-hmm. that was weird, but Olympus. Yeah. And I'm so, like, whoa, what happened there? I don't know. And that's another thing where the timeline of that happening is very confusing. And how long was she on Olympus? Did another Greek god kidnap her and then Thea repurposed her? Because it doesn't seem like she should have been there that long, but apparently it was two years. But Thea's plan didn't seem to take two years. That part in and of itself is weird. I think we're supposed to take away that her dad went a little bit more off the deep end, maybe due to her disappearance, and that before then he had been like kind of holding himself in check. And yeah, he had some nutty ideas about evolution and stuff, but was maybe less of a zealot about it. Mm-hmm. As much as her powers are like magnetism in this and that they can do anything, we again get the idea that Prometheum is the same shit. I think I started referring to it last New Teen Titans episode as nonsensium, which I think is a much more descriptive word for it, especially because there is an actual element called Prometheum that as near as I can tell, hitting it doesn't make it stronger. It's like, um, what's the stuff in Avatar? Unobtainium? Pretty much. Yeah. I get it. It's a comic book. You need a magic metal. But I feel like in the Marvel Universe, like, it's more, this metal does this, like, adamantium is unbreakable. Okay. Vibranium absorbs and repurposes vibrations. Okay. Prometheum does it all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's a little more bullshitty to me. Yeah. Well, it's it's DC, so you don't have uh, Kyle Richmond's not going to buy it all up and use it to make office furniture out of. Oh God, he would totally buy a Prometheum chair. Mm -hmm. The more I hit it, the more comfortable it is. It's amazing. I'm kind of on the fence about how I feel her, the way that Cole's desire to have a human connection, especially with, with Joe, is put. It's, on one hand, like, she's empowered, but on sure. the other hand, it's... And it's very guileless about it, and it's very upfront. Mm-hmm. Kind of split. I liked it a lot in the last issue, and I thought that that made sense, and I appreciated that there didn't seem to be... The comic book didn't seem to be slut-shaming her mm-hmm. for expressing herself. And it wasn't making it that, oh, she's only doing this because she was traumatized or anything like that. In this issue, there is still that potential read on it. But the fact that she is pushing so hard when Joe has made it clear that he is not interested is a little bit more cringy. I know it was her expressing frustration, but I was kind of amused when she did something she like most people just aren't supposed to do, like if somebody's had their vocal cords severed in a traumatic childhood accident to get really mad and shout at them, why can't you talk? Does yeah. she not know? I don't think she did know. And that is why his response to that is he takes it at face value and it's like, oh, you want the exposition of my backstory? Okay. Yeah, definitely a social faux pas at the very least on mm-hmm. her part. And I wasn't sure if it was supposed to be, this is an exclamation out of frustration, like, why can't you talk? Which is a fucked up thing to say to a person who cannot talk. Mm-hmm. Or if it was more of a, hey, why can't you talk? Which is definitely still a, like, breach of social etiquette, but maybe a magnitude less. Yeah, or, uh, or a childlike take on things where you sure. haven't quite gotten your cultural cues down and right things are different on olympus where she grew up as warden of a woman's prison i did think it was funny that he is so perfunctory about the actual literal answer to her question that he gets that part out of the way at 
the beginning. If we clean up the language behind it, she's basically being like, what happened that you can't talk anymore? And he's like, oh, that? Uh, yeah, Tara slipped my throat while my mom was watching. Anyway, my childhood was hard. I liked art. They just wanted me I, to fight. Yeah, my brother was a bully. My parents were both dicks. They didn't basically approve of me being sensitive. And they made me good at fighting. And I am super good at fighting, but I just don't give a shit about it. Mm-hmm. I liked Joe in this issue. I did for the most part, too. So... He has a couple of times where he uses his creepy power to jump into Marilyn the Bug Lady, Cole's mom. Mm -hmm. At the end, he does that, and apparently then just nothing comes of it. Or, and this is kind of the way that I read it, was he the one that was talking to her dad and convincing him to let Cole and the others go? That was my initial thought, because else, why would he have jumped into her body again? But immediately after that, they show him corporeally standing there right but i don't know if like that was after he did it it's the only thing that kind of makes sense and it's like kind of sneaky in a way that you don't generally associate with joe Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be the first time because you see before the first time he jumps into Marilyn's body we're like okay he made contact with her and now he's going to free the other titans but he doesn't he jumps into her body and then just stands there and cole shatters the thing I was like, well, why go through that whole thing of making him make eye contact with her and then jump into her body if he's not going to do anything? And it really seemed like it was setting him up for him to be the hero with it's like, he finally learned to overcome his fear of these creepy crawly fucks. Well, that's exactly what didn't happen because what happened was it was fortunate he jumped into Cole's mom and um, she was like, whoa, this is fucking gross and weird. Mm -hmm. And that distracted her dad long enough for her to break the glass. Joe was probably planning on doing some cool shit, but he jumped into a giant bug, and then he was just like, what? I only got these two giant legs and these little mandible things, and I don't know what to do. It made me wonder, too, to what extent Joe had set up if he was emotionally manipulating her dad by pretending to be her bug mom at the end, which I'm kind of leaning towards that's what happened. If in the last issue, when he jumped into Cole's dad's body, we saw that he allowed Cole's dad to keep talking and still have his, like, I don't know why I'm doing this, but I guess I'm walking into this room. And maybe through that was giving the impression that he couldn't take over people's voices when he was in their body. Mm. Like, how far back does this Machiavellian scheming of Joe's go? Wow. And so then, like, her dad's like, well, he took over... Marilyn's body, because the first thing Marilyn says after he jumps into his body is, uh, Abe, he's in me again. (laughs) And then immediately she launches into, hey, honey, I don't know if we should be doing this. We should probably let our daughter and her friends go. Yeah, maybe, maybe that is what happened, but that does seem a lot more like chess playing, strategically forward thinking than I'm used to. Yeah. Joe being... I mean, none of the heroes in this book seem to be like, they're playing chess while the other guy's playing checkers type of Mm -hmm. tactics. They're much more, I don't know, you're playing checkers, I'm playing this game where I just mash checkers together. (laughs) Just slowly melting them with a lighter. (laughs) Yeah. I bash the red checker into the black checker and see which one breaks first. Mm -hmm. Which, to be fair, is also a very fun game. Did you really do that? No. That would be almost impossible, I think. They're pretty thick plastic. Well, these guys are superheroes. 
we do get a slight furthering of the uh, Vic and Sarah Sims miscues going on in this. Oh man, it's getting. I'm beginning to feel uncomfortable with how miscued things are becoming. Yeah, and really, pretty much all of this is Vic's fault. He doesn't talk to somebody for over two months, and then continues to make bizarre assumptions about not just their relationship, but like, he shows up at her house randomly without announcing himself, and is like, she's not home? But she never goes out at night. You don't even fucking know this woman anymore, if you ever did. It's another situation in which it would be clarifying, I think, to have a more consistent timeline of when things have happened. Because we've said that he hasn't contacted her for a couple of months. I think it's been said before that the new Teen Titans have only existed as a team for about a year. So he really doesn't know this woman very well. They've spent like a few afternoons together over the course of a year, and then not for a couple of months. To say, oh, she never goes out at night, it's a bizarre assumption to make. Yeah, also there is built into his action a great deal of power has been invested in these this bouquet of flowers. You yes. know, he's like, okay, I know I haven't talked to this woman or told her about my feelings, you know, ever. And we haven't seen each other for months. But I got flowers. <laughs> I am so getting lucky. He's humming to himself. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, he's like, he's got his, his good, his like date pants on or something. I don't know. He's got, the, he's oh, got like, a nice pair of date sneakers on. I'll tell you that much. Did you recognize the logo on those? I didn't unless they are Philadelphia Flyers branded <laughs> hockey team Is branded sneakers. It it That's what the familiar. logo looks like to me, but it looks really cool. I spent a good 20 minutes Googling shoe logos from the 80s, and I saw some cool stuff, but I couldn't find it. It looked, they looked just maybe from the color scheme, because I have a similar, like, track top, it looked kind of like Pony brand. Yeah, it's not, that's just a, I, I've, I've Just the word this. Pony. And a, like a, like, like a, a like a Chevron kind of. Yeah, like a checkmark type thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They look most like Jordans, uh, which, which would have worked. For the timeline, for, if it's the, the them coming out in 85. Yeah, but that was like a basketball with like kind of cloud things under it. It mm. doesn't make it all the same Flyers logo. That he yeah, has. it really does look like the Philadelphia Flyers logo, but I don't think they had a line of sneakers. I kind of wish they did, though, because those are some nice looking kicks. They were probably like like a knockoff Jordans that you, you could oh, go you to bought like down the, on Canal Street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like uh, Jardoons. Mm-hmm. Or like uh, B.J. Armstrong's. Hmm? He was a teammate of Jordan who wasn't his. You know, oh, so. that's, it's, that's, that's too deep. Sorry. Coup coaches? Huh? Never mind. So, at the end of the book, when all of Abe Weathers' creations and Abe and Marilyn make like the kid at the end of Halloween 3 and turn into a series of bugs... Ugh. Do you think they were just regular bugs? Do they still have human intelligence? What's the deal with those bugs? Because uh, they're bug-sized now. They're not no longer bug-human hybrids physically. Looking. I thought they were still big bugs. Was that just a zoom, the panel zoomed in so they looked? That was the impression that I got. Uh, let's take a look at that again. Because they didn't look like a human-insect hybrid anymore to me. They look more like regular bugs. I think that's just a zoom in. I think they're just regular bugs. Wow, shit. Do you think that then they, they no longer have, like, usual human consciousness? They're, they got bug brains? I think so. And that's why they said they're happy? Maybe. 
I really, I was trying to piece that together myself because really I got the impression that it's just like, now they're just regular ass bugs. That's the happy ending that they were looking for. Like probably tougher bugs that are immune to radiation and I guess crystalline in some way. But one of the things that he says is now they can't, they're incapable of making war. And I wasn't sure if they were just because they were bug shaped, they couldn't make war. But if they still have human intelligence, I feel like they could figure out a way to do that. If they wanted to. Yeah, they could harness the power of hive mind. I mean, exactly. I think insects are easily the most biologically successful creatures on the planet. Yeah, a lot of times you'll see them forming into like a giant hand and making a beckoning motion if they're trying to lure a bear into some kind of a trap. Like they could do that shit towards people now, which they couldn't have done before. I think in some ways they're much better at making war now. Well, then you answered your own question. They got they got bug brains now. Then what's the fucking point? That's his big solution is make people into bugs? I don't like it. No, I don't like it either. That's why Robin at the end is just like, oh, that's bullshit. Yeah, he's not wrong. That's a bullshit cop-out. He says that? Well, he's implied. He says something about, like, it's better to solve problems rather than... Turn into to, a bug? ...than to bug out. Yeah, he says, no, they were wrong. The answer is not to run and hide from your problems. It's to work out solutions. Life by itself isn't the answer to everything. It's what you do with it. Yeah. All right. Don't bug out. Yeah. Bug in. Exactly. I also am a little bit curious as to... Cyborg says something like, We've got to tell people about what we saw here today. That'll put an end to all of these nuclear stockpilings. <laughs> what are you going to tell people? I know that we're on the brink of nuclear annihilation, but wait till you get a load of this, guys. Some scientist turned a few people into bugs. Does he just expect Reagan and Gorbachev to then just be like, tear down the wall and destroy all of our weapons? It would have been like, shit, we're staying in Iceland. Yeah, no kidding. That's, that's where they were then. It might come up later. Oh. And that is kind of the specific setting of this. This comic book came out pretty soon after Gorbachev had taken over as the Soviet premier. It had, I think, been like Cherkov. <laughs> I might, that might not be the name, because that does sound a lot like Cherkov when I say it out loud. I'm probably misremembering it. Gorbachev's predecessor was, in fact, Konstantin Chernenko, not Cherkov. It is unknown whether or not he was a jerk-off. It was a guy who was only premier for about a year before he died. Before Gorbachev took over? Before Gorbachev and after Yuri Andropov. But I have vague recollections of Gorbachev when he took over. There was more of a slight sense of a softening of relations. So this is kind of the height of Cold War tension. It certainly wasn't over by any stretch of the imagination, like... Reagan and NATO forces were still doing some weird, like, baiting things with, like, flyovers of Soviet states. And I remember being terrified that we were all going to blow up in a nuclear war, which, um, gosh, I wish that wasn't a perennially relevant <sighs> topic. Yeah. Jeez. But I feel like this was kind of the height of Cold War tension, like this period. Mm. It was before Rocky IV came out and, you know... Solved everything. Pre-Glasnost. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think Rocky IV was the inspiration for Gorbachev's loosening of... Yeah, just really you know, a perestroika-inspiring. Yeah. 
we have to stop using these performance-enhancing drugs. <laughs> That's a pretty good Russian accent I, mean, I just did. Yeah, it was. That was very good Russian <laughs> accent. Um, it reminded me of the time when the Russians were informing Kirk that they couldn't give it any more power. <laughs> James Doohan was supposed to be Russian, right? He's like a piece of iron. <laughs> That's less, less, a little less bit of a less brogue. Scottish. Yeah, I think uh, what you're trying to go for is a. Uh, he was tired. I cannot break him. <laughs> what do you think of the art in this issue? Beautiful. The cover and the initial opening spread are great, mm-hmm. and the uh, the lab equipment and all the technology and the bug lab, you know, harken back to Perez's ability to churn out tons of detail it it is and i think in some ways the technology stuff specifically it looks more 80s than i'm used to seeing comic book technology look i feel like with a lot of artists they understandably revere the way that uh jack kirby drew technology and we'll try to focus on that more and like try to recreate kirby-esque high-tech magical nonsense which i love that look don't get me wrong but this had like a cleaner kind of more 80s style techno design to mm-hmm. the science lab nonsense. Yeah, very sci-fi. Lots of kind of spires and other pointy things and tubes and buttons. Yeah, the cover is once again, the past few have been by Eduardo Beretta and really solid stuff. I will say, much like the issue itself, I think this has probably been one of the less exciting covers for me, although it is still very well done. It didn't have the same, like, oh my gosh, I gotta read this and see what's inside this thing. It's a good cover, but it just looks kind of like a comic book cover that, again, looks also like a nod to the Swamp Thing movie that I did not realize was directed by Wes Craven. Did you? Oh, really? No. Yeah. It's 1982, so it was before he did Nightmare on Elm Street, but after The Hell's Have Eyes. So I kind of want to check that movie out again. Yeah, yeah, we should. I loved that era of Swamp Thing when I was a kid. I think a lot of it went over my head. It was probably... Like the Alan Moore stuff? Mm -hmm. It's so good. I revisited some of that pretty recently, and it's really good. Remember the one where where Swampy started growing hallucinogenic yams and that hippie was following him around? Corey, of course I remember that. It's (laughs) the best thing that ever happened in a comic book. Maybe not the best thing. That would still probably be the hallucinogenic balloon salesman. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, when he, he started growing psychedelic yams and hippies started, yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah. I think one of my favorite art sequences in the book and one of the running things that we see with uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez's art is the interesting layouts that we get. And one of the ones that I wanted to take a little bit more of a closer look at in this one is the framing device of having the panels appear on the scaffolding of the Titan Tower. So good. It's really, really cool the way that ended up working. Before, I think we talked about how, like when Destiny held up the nine-panel grid of what was happening for an epilogue, or there was another one in a more recent issue, but it's really, really clever, and there's a lot of, like, breaking of the panel with some stuff going on around the outside. But yeah, the, the panels of... What's happening inside the lab with a conversation between Abe and Marilyn looking like they're hanging from the scaffolding of the under construction Titan Tower. It's on page nine and it's just really cool looking. Yeah, you kind of already pointed it out, but I feel like I don't know if it's 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 since the art team changed up, but they have really moved away from just the usual stuff that we're used to seeing and doing these whole page deals with panels superimposed over them and then panels being part of other things. And it's 
Really interesting. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about this series, really since the changeover to the like Baxter paper and the new f- publishing format, is overall with the art, there has been more of a willingness to, or not even just willingness, but more of a celebration of innovation in mm-hmm. the art form in a ton of different ways. And I was worried that maybe there would be less of that once Perez wasn't doing the art anymore, but in certain ways there has been almost more. It's been really, really great. And also now we're down to a single inker. It's just Romeo Tangal. And I appreciate that. It is a little bit, the last issue of the art was still very good, but in this one, it's back to a more like coherent art look. I feel like very clean. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about Beast Boy. Oh, boy. And his complicated relationship with his stepdad. Yeah. We see that he searched looking for his dad, who he has just found out is dying. And when he shows up, he yells at him. The nerve. For dying. What about me, dad? So, here's the thing. There are a lot of complicated feelings that will come up around grief, and it gets expressed in a lot of different ways. I don't feel like it's necessarily that unusual to have it mixed with guilt and anger and a feeling like you're abandoning me. What is weird is to have it stated so clearly and explicitly. It's this weird mix of being entirely unself-aware and also strangely cognizant of what's happening with yourself emotionally in a way that really doesn't ring true. Mm, For Beast Boy? For anyone, I feel like. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily that Beast Boy wouldn't feel that way, but that he would recognize that that was how he was feeling and express it. Even if it is misguided, it's so clear. I feel like part of that is it's like the swelling music that doesn't need to be there in a lot of movies where Mm. it's like maybe the reader forgot that he's completely emotionally traumatized by all of his parental figures being taken away from him and he's still not emotionally developed past that right therefore he's got to say are you going to leave me too like everybody else who's died yeah i did think it was weird that they're making despite that and like that's overtly kind of a dick self-centered move which i feel is you know pretty in keeping with beast boy but that the reaction to it is also steve dayton being a dick and then being a dick to questor who everybody just stopped being mean to questor He's doing his best. I am on Team Questor in pretty much every situation we've seen him portrayed in. Which is weird because when we first met that character, I was sure that he was like a scheming no good Nick who was going to try to take Beast Boy's company away from him. Mm-hmm. But no, he's just a good guy who wants what's best for his shitty green ward and his shitty fifth richest, therefore fifth most trustworthy man in America employer. He's caught between a bit of a rock and a hard spot too because he... Basically says, hey, Dayton, don't be so hard on the kid. He's being a jerk, but it's because he's emotionally shook up. So, hey, maybe. Yeah, I heard him crying the other night. Maybe be nice to him. Yeah. Earns him a a verbal beatdown. Good good on him. Yeah. We also noticed that apparently the only physical manifestation of Steve Dayton's fatal disease is that the, uh, he's got the Reed Richards white sidewalls on his, Mm -hmm. on his hair. Oh, stressful. Yeah, but it's a good look for him. You ready to get into the minutia? Sure. Let me just quickly tick off what what I noticed as the plot points to make sure I didn't miss any. I think we Absolutely. We, we talked about all of them, but uh, so we got Joe's backstory. Sure. We just talked about Beast Boy and Dayton yelling at each other. Mm-hmm. 
We got the uh, Cyborg, Sarah, Gary, whatever that's going to turn into. And it'll come up a little bit later, but I gotta say, I think I like this Gary guy. He's a sharp-dressed man, that's for sure. Indeed. Let's see, we got uh, whatever's going to happen with Cole and uh, Joe. There's maybe something he's not interested, but it, maybe he'll change his mind. Yeah. And then, of course, the completion of the, the main storyline with uh, Cole's mom and dad uh, bugging out. Bugging out, indeed. Did I... That's all of it, right? I think so, yeah. All right. I mean, we have some that were established in previous lines that I think we'll get back to probably in the next issue, but that's all that we talk about here. I mean, there is still... The spaceship coming from Tamarand that we're going to need to get to eventually. You got Zack Wingman being roped into the Church of Blood in some way, maybe. But that's all we got for now. I'm so annoyed he didn't just stay on Olympus. That would have solved all of his problems. Yeah, well, there was a lot about, honestly, the resolution of that story that didn't quite sit right with me. The fact that it was a storyline that was a multi-issue arc that was centered around Lilith, in which... Lilith didn't do shit at all. She decided to become a god at the end. She did what she was told to when Zeus told her to stay and be a god. That That's it. It was a Lilith-centric storyline in which Lilith didn't do anything, and I found that very frustrating. But also, yeah, why, what, what's Zach Wingman's problem? I don't know. I read somewhere his name's supposed to be Azrael. I really don't think we ever got that information. I think he's even called that in the letters column of this issue. Weird. Yeah. That's like uh, Gargamel's cat's name. Exactly. He isn't hanging out with Gargamel. Maybe that's why he had to rush off. Gargamel's going to be pissed if I'm out much later. <laughs> he doesn't like me hanging out with Lilith. I turn into my cat form and go back to hating Smurfs. Yep. <laughs> Typical Zack Wingman. Rick, would you mind singing us into the minutia? <laughs> <laughs> we got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Cory eating farts. We got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, mm-hmm. in this issue, we've got our new category that we minted last New Teen Titans story, but it has a bold new rebranding name that I came up when I was writing down the category names. Which character in this book acted the most dramatically? Who is the president of the drama club? There was certainly some drama going on. Mm-hmm. I felt like the most overacted bits came from Joe. Interesting. I can I can see that. I didn't feel like he was over-emoting in this. I feel like he was terrified, but it didn't seem like a performative terrified. There's two parts in particular that I'm thinking of that aren't when he's scared, and it's when he's frustrated uh, dealing with Cole after she he wakes up next to her. <laughs> because <laughs> she, she has climbed into his bed with him he's like ah but uh after that when she's yelling at him for not being able to talk he does a like that's like a thousand yard lemur stare he does that and uh he does a like sit on the bed and like do the thinker oh and then he also has another like grabbing his head in frustration thing so it was i know he's can't talk so he's more physical in his sure way that he communicates but uh it, it did seem a little overwrought okay i decided to go with beast boy I felt like his explosion into Steve Dayton's room. And like I said, that he has such clarity in his misguided emotions and really seemed to be putting on a show with them as to how angry he was about Steve Dayton dying that 
I don't know, that felt pretty dramatic to me. And we do also have him specifically referencing two different directors in this, Mm -hmm. which I think is also another aspect, perhaps, of being the president of the drama club. I mean, very theater kid move there. Sure. But mostly just for, I felt like, his performative interaction with Steve Dayton. Yeah, he did a really angry pointing. Mm It's like the, uh, the, the lady that's with the cat and all those memes these days. Oh, yeah. He looked like that, kind of. He kind of did. And then he could, if he was trying to act out that meme, he could turn into the cat, too. Mm. That would be something. Mm. Probably somebody's already done a Beast Boy meme about that. It seems like they've done every other meme about that thing. (laughs) He also, when he turns into a bunny rabbit, that is an angry bunny rabbit that Mm -hmm. was very scary to me. Hops off angrily. Mm -hmm. Hops towards the camera angrily. Just with these beady little evil eyeballs. Yeah, I was worried about you. I'm okay. Okay. But thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, it came up briefly in our discussion, but did you have a timestamp in this issue? Yeah, I had a few. The first one is a little bit of a stretch, but we mentioned uh, Dayton's new hairdo already. On page five, the way that he is depicted facing the viewer and wearing the suit and his hairdo, he looks straight up like uh, Ted Koppel. Oh, from that from that time in, I remember seeing him on the news a lot, and that looked like very mid eighties Ted Koppel. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, I had I mentioned them already, but Beast Boy references first Roger Corman, which is not a very specific timestamp because he had a very long career starting in the sixties, um, as a fifties. Mm-hmm. Wow, as a movie producer, but. I feel like maybe the 80s was the first time when his name was, to the general public, synonymous with low-budget genre movies. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, yeah, there is a scene in which, when Beast Boy at least first encounters the insectoid creations of Abe and Marilyn, he says that they could be used in a Roger Corman movie. Mm -hmm. Yep, I had that. And then later on, he says, look out, George Lucas. When something's happening in a reference to special effects, which would be a Star Wars reference. So mm-hmm. there's that as well. I think at this point, uh, Return of the Jedi had had come out. I mean, it's possible that he was referring to American Graffiti, but I would be surprised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It didn't seem like there were a lot of, like, 50s cars in this issue. I don't think that was... Yeah, I think it's probably Star Wars. Any other timestamps? Uh, yeah, we already talked about it, but basically the whole... All the dialogue on page 7 and 8 is height of Cold War nuclear stuff. Yeah. Which was very, very much in keeping with that time period. And I'm sure we'll talk about it when we get to the clothing, but the way that that flower thief was dressed was... Oh, man. More 80s than you can shake a stick at. Yeah, well, fuck it. We've been segueing from one category to another so far. Let's keep this segue train a-rolling. Sartorially speaking... Which elements of fashion did you find worthy of note? Yeah, page six, new wave, flower stealer. Yeah, it is a heck of a look he's put together. It is very new wave in the sunglasses and haircut, at least. And then he's wearing aggressively pleated and cuffed pants. Mm-hmm. It's I, I don't think they're quite harem pants, but they're not far off from it. It's quite a look. He reminds me a little bit of like the... Uh, the gang the mutants that was in Dark Knight Returns. Hmm. Do you remember those guys at all? Nope. Hmm. 
And they had sunglasses like that and weird haircuts. But yeah, it's it's a weird new wave look, and I kind of liked this guy. I mean, he's stealing the, he sees the flower sitting on a doorstep, looks, reads the card, throws the card out, and is like, bad news, Vic, but my sweetheart's gonna reap the rewards. Mm -hmm. Which would maybe lend some credence to Vic's assumption that these are some special, awesome flowers that somebody just sees them and is just like, oh, fuck yeah. Mm -hmm. This hooligan's got some free flowers. Yeah, yeah, I didn't approve of his actions, but... No. But he did it with flair, which you have with, to appreciate. With flair. Um, yeah, we talked about uh, Vic's rad kicks. Mm -hmm. But Vic's, I mean, I guess not even really rival, but uh, the guy who I'm sure Vic will be jealous of, Gary. Gary has a very specific look that he has put together. I have never seen that degree of shoulder pads in men's clothing from the 80s. I have seen some, but mm -hmm. not like that. That is an extremely shoulder padded jacket. It is. He has made himself into a big triangle, mm -hmm. which is a good look for him, I think. But the fact that it is a garish, very shoulder-padded purple blazer that he has put on over a black turtleneck and black pants, I feel like if you couple that with a little bit more information that we have about Gary, and we don't have much, we saw in the last issue that he chain smokes and that they are late for a play, do you think he is a stagehand? At the theater. Because he's wearing the, like, all black stuff outfit that you would use to move stuff around on the stage. I think that might be his job. They're late for a play that starts at 8 o'clock. I think maybe he has the elaborate jacket on to disguise that. But once you take that jacket off, he is absolutely dressed for moving shit around on the stage. Or he's... It's... What was it? The Imago guys that were, like, wear, like, a big part of a costume and then the rest was like that so it looked like they were like uh, bugs or something i have no idea what you're talking about well, I, hope I guess I'm, your I extensive hope knowledge up. of theater is more than mine ah well it's uh, what are the imago guys i have only the fuzziest of memories i think it's stuff that's that's geared towards kids and they could be like frogs and things Several minutes of Googling later. No, that's not it. That's just people dressed as penguins. <laughs> Do you think that Gary's maybe a penguin? <laughs> I, it's, no, it's, it's a different theater thing. I can't remember the name of it. It's not people dressed like giant it's penguins. Moment shots, is it? Yeah, that's. I think that's what I'm thinking of. Oh. They, they were like uh, like black leotards. They were sometimes stuff, on right? the Muppet show. But that's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Yeah, maybe he's in moment shots. Okay, I guess Imago is a Portland theater where people dress as penguins. Oh, I've been to the Imago theater. I think maybe we've been together. I don't know if... I don't know how that became... I don't think we saw the shows. penguin show. I'm now pissed off to know that there's a penguin show that we missed. Those guys are partying. Yeah. I'm usually scared of birds, but those guys look okay. Yeah, they do. I mean, they didn't pay us, so we shouldn't be advertising them. But I guess if you live in Portland, check out the Imago theater, because they got penguins doing penguin shit, I guess. Or at least there's a picture of that on the internet. Oh, the internet's not allowed to lie to us. You know that. I'm just saying I don't know if it's a contemporary act. Oh, like maybe they used to have penguins, but then the penguins went on to bigger and better things. Right. In other fashion, Jericho's wearing a pretty cool outfit on the first page. That first page spread is drawn really good. It is gorgeous. And Joe is wearing kind of a Wolverine-y type look. He's wearing a red jacket over a plaid shirt orange pants, yellow belt, but in a way that looks like both 80s and outdoorsy. 
And in a kind of Wolverine-y way, and he's doing kind of a Wolverine-y pose. Mm -hmm. Like, he's got his fists clenched and held out in a way that it looks like maybe he is trying to make claws shoot out of them. Which, Joe, you can't do that. Not your power. No. But good try. Appreciate the effort. Yeah, yeah. That's a very cool, cool picture. Mm -hmm. Well, fuck, let's keep segueing. Speaking of cool pictures, what was your favorite panel? Right, so we have that one that we just mentioned, basically the first page. Mm -hmm. It's awesome. There's so many of those creepy, crawly, critter, humanoid things. Very well rendered. I also, though, think that my favorite is on page 11, and it's the the flight panel. The scene in which the the Titans are approaching Weather's laboratory, which is up on this cliffside, and there's these really cool kind of like pink or purple trees and interesting foliage. It's just, it's it's a really cool panel. Yeah, we do see, again, that it seems to be a Jose Luis Garcia hallmark that Vic will ride Beast Boy as a giant bird. And I like that. I think that's pretty cute. Once they get to the house on the next page, there is a panel that I don't think it's my favorite. In fact, maybe it's my least favorite, but it certainly captured my imagination, where a bug creature is flying at the Titans and squirting goo out of these barnacles that are all over its chest. It's gross. Just, like, viciously, horrifically lactating at the Titans. And I kind of can't stop thinking about it, especially when you see that it's a very sticky, crystalline goo that's shooting out of its chest barnacle dicks all over Starfire. It. It's such a gross panel, but it's really well done. Like I said, it's it's perhaps the opposite of my favorite, but it definitely invokes the horror that I think it is supposed to. It really messes her game up. She can't shoot her star bolts. She falls out of the sky. Yeah. It is gross. The other favorite that I had, we talked about how well uh, the technology is drawn in this, and there is a panel on page 15 that is about half a page spread that... I called the Crystal Bug Juice Sous Vide, <laughs> in which the Teen Titans are all cooking in a big high-tech aquarium full of hot crystal bug juice. Mmm, hot crystal bug juice. I think they serve that at Sananigans. <laughs> oh, they do now. <laughs> yeah, it's just a really, really nicely done panel, and it also made me realize that I have absolutely no idea how to spell sous vide. I spelled it like Susie Sue spells her name when I was taking notes. S-O-U-S-V-I-D-E. I was way off. No no X's in there. Well, there should be. They might be on the shenanigans menu. (laughs) Of course. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book has an Aqualad, the greatest of Teen Titans, and also a Beast Boy, the worst of Teen Titans. In this issue, who was your... Mm, let's start with Beast Boy. <sighs> yeah, once again, Beast Boy for me is Beast Boy. I think we don't need to go back into what we already talked about with him having an understandable emotional response to, to Steve Dayton's impending demise. But still, he was just such a... Like, go to, do that yourself first. Right. Like, in the mirror or something. Be like, right. I'm so mad at you dying on me. And then you're like, oh, I shouldn't actually say that. He's probably also got, you know, what I mean? Yeah, like, it, it's the same Beast Boy behavior, just in terms of not having a filter and 
recentering every interaction to be about him, but in a way that he is completely unself-aware of. I get that he's going through some stuff. And yeah, with grief, especially as it surrounds death, it's messy and shitty, and there are often tumbled emotions that deal with it. But regardless, you do have to be aware of the impact that you have on others. And he's not. He consistently isn't, which has led to my vote for him. I will say it was slightly tempered by the one panel where he shows up as a little green gopher and calls himself Gar the Gopher. Kind of, but for me that makes it worse that, like, he transitions out of this anger and rage and frustration, and then as soon as Steve Dayton tells him to go away, he's just like, yeah, my stepdad's dying. <laughs> I'll make some jokes and, you know, back to being his, like, beast boy putting up the emotional walls for himself. I have another reason why I, I also chose it's him. It's a cute gopher, Hope. He is a cute that was gopher. My, okay. That was my point. It's a, it's a cute gopher, but I feel like that is perhaps counterweighted by the horrific bunny rabbit that he turns into. Ah, touche. Yes. All right, he's the worst. Yeah, yeah. Agreed. In addition to those reasons, I also had Beast Boy as my worst. There's something that is easy to miss, but it talks about him looking throughout the Dayton palatial estate for his dad. He checks all 78 rooms and has perseverance and tracks him down. If tracking down someone in a large, rambling mansion is a skill that he possesses, I am doubly angry at him for never looking for John Gnark. Oh, man. Yeah. He could have used those skills. He could have put them to use, could have turned into all manner of creatures and roamed the halls of Jupiter Towers and found John Gnark. And he didn't. And so that's why Beast Boy is the Beast Boy. There's another bad thing he did as well, which is that it's right after Cole realizes that her parents are essentially going to die, as she knows them, he makes that joke about they could be in a Roger Corman movie. Yeah. Like, immediately after they, they escape death themselves, or death by being turned into insects right probably some ego death at that ego point, death I would at, imagine, at if least nothing else yes yeah. and uh it seemed like a horrible time to make a joke yes yeah. like he does not read the room in any situation he's a shitty guy bad job beast boy yes conversely who was your aqualad i had cole here's a character who has been through some awful stuff mm-hmm who is then confronted with, I essentially have to take part in the destruction of my parents because they're going to turn a bunch of people into bugs against their will. Then mm-hmm. convinces them not to do that. They go off and turn themselves into bugs. And she's able to basically forgive and uh, and you know have a, an element of uh, a love for these parents. That To me, that's incredibly, like, the emotional resiliency or Mm. flexibility that it would take to be able to be like i have to kill my parents for the better of the world but i still love them like yeah i think that's a decision we've all faced that's a tough tightrope to walk and she she pulled it off so that's why she got my vote but did she convince her parents not to kill the titans or was it joe was it joe who Mm. turned into her mom and then convinced her dad not to kill the titans I am operating under the assumption that when Cole's mom had the heartfelt conversation with her dad and convinced him not to kill all the Titans or bugify the Titans, that that was actually Joey 
doing a very clever subterfuge job that he set up in the last issue by behaving as though he could not control what people were saying when he took over Abe Weather's body. Mm -hmm. And so for that kind of setting stuff up, playing three-dimensional chess while they're just bashing checkers into each other, breaking them cyborg style, I had to go with Joey. Yeah, if that's what happened, that's a good vote. Also, he confronted his fear, and he made some uh, some 50-yard lemur stare eyes. Yeah, that was pretty creepy and good. Yeah. I guess he has the worst power. It's it's, it's just cool. inherently like a yucky power. It is. No, I, th- I think that's a fine choice. I would also, though, like to put out that Cole, uh, even if that was Jericho doing all that, it was a, it was a team effort. Well, They kind of I mean, tag-teamed the convincing it more seems like from the other reading it would be that cole convinced her mom and then her mom convinced her dad Mm -hmm. but in this it would be cole convinced her mom but didn't realize that her mom was actually jericho and didn't need convincing yeah but her dad is listening to the whole thing oh so they were just putting on a little play for his benefit like in hamlet yes i get you the The plays the the hamlet gambit sure Well, Corey, I have but one further question I must put to you. All right. Waput! In the year of our Lord, 1986, as we are going from the date of the reprints, Mm -hmm. and the month of our Lord, October, what was Aqualad probably up to Waput? Yeah, so in October of 86, we all know that training montages were an especially big part of the zeitgeist at the time. And uh, we also know that Aqualad, with his sea-strengthened limbs, is uh, quite a formidable exerciser. Indeed. So, he was having a little trouble finding exercise buddies who could keep up with him. So, we started doing some, some put out some ads, you know, wanted ads or uh, classifieds, interviewed some people, and would just do these epic workouts with people to see who could who could keep up with his sea-strengthened body. And uh, on October 14 of 1986, he was in New Jersey, close to the eastern seaboard, mm-hmm. likes to go swim around. Anyway, he met uh, one uh, Tim Kides, and uh, they were doing leg lifts. And sea-strengthened leg lifts? Mm-hmm. He started going one-for-one one with this guy, and the dude just didn't freaking stop. What? And it was one of these things where it was like, uh, I don't know, a synergy, like when two people are playing music together and it's like they're completing each other's phrases. So they had like a leg lifting jam band? Yeah. Wow. And it just went on and on. And it went on for just under 12 hours. That's a lot of leg lifting. Aqualad had to go get a drink of water, you know, a few times. Right. 12 times, I would imagine. Well, Beaky was was bringing him some. Oh, okay. So it wasn't like every every hour. Gotcha. But at any rate, he ducked out, and this guy Tim Kides was able to set the Guinness Book of World Records for leg lifts, uh, which was twenty five thousand wow. leg lifts done in just under twelve hours. That is impressive. Yeah, it is. It is crazy, and their their exercise friendship. Uh, from there blossomed. Oh. And they kept working out over the years. And, in fact, the same guy later on in 89 went on to set the world record for the amount of sit-ups ever done, which was 125,000 
My goodness. Done in one stretch. Do you know who at one point held the record before him? Mm. Angelo Poffo, who is the father of both Leap and Lanny Poffo and Macho Man Randy Savage. No kidding. Yeah. He held a sit-up record for a long time. Wow. If not for Aqualad, he might still have it. Oh, damn that. I can't say damn Aqualad. Ah. Can't. Won't. Don't. Shan't. Okay. Well, that is one thing that Aqualad was probably up to. But he had a very busy October in 1986. Mm. We talked a little bit before about the general Cold War air of nuclear nightmare diplomacy that was going on, and especially when Aqualad got word from his buddy in the Titans that a scientist somewhere made a bunch of people turn into bugs, he realized that this course that our world was on with the collision of the superpowers between the USSR and the United States, it was not sustainable. And so what Aqualad did was he he made some calls behind the scenes, and he helped get a couple of world leaders in the form of Ronald Reagan and the relatively recently appointed Mikhail Gorbachev to sit down together in Reykjavik, Iceland. And so it was a good, I believe, first meeting between these two world leaders. And Aqualad was there for it, but he got there a little bit early to, you know, make sure everything's set up nice. Everything's uh, not going to piss either one of them off. It'll be an era conducive to negotiation and compromise. And so he had some extra time on his hands in Iceland. And he ended up going to a club, saw this band play that had formed back in June. It's the Sugar Cubes. Oh, young. Fe- featuring a relatively young Bjork, although Bjork had started her music career when she was 11. Wow. But he saw them play and he was super impressed. So he called up a couple of friends he had at uh, Electra Records and then just kind of put it out of his mind. Meeting went okay, headed back to the States. Got some tickets to the World Series. He's pretty excited about that. Um, him and Beaky went and saw in Fenway Park. They got tickets to Game 6. They saw the uh, Boston Red Sox play the New York Mets. Very exciting game. Bottom of the 10th. Red Sox are up 5-3. If they win, series is over. It's looking pretty good for the Red Sox. Unfortunately, the Mets started uh, rallying a comeback. And during that comeback, I believe it was Mookie Wilson had been at bat, and Beaky brought word to Aqualad that the Sugar Cubes were sitting down with a representative from Electra. They didn't end up signing the deal until 87, but Aqualad heard that uh, that the deal was going to go down, and he was so excited because he really enjoyed the Sugar Cubes playing. And so he just stood up and went, yeah! Which distracted Bill Buckner Aww. when a line drive was hit right to him. He was about to reach down and scoop up that ground ball, but he got distracted by Aqualad's cry. The ball went right through his legs. Mm. Mets ended up winning the World Series that year. Dang it, Aqualad. I know. And that's what Aqualad was probably up to. I feel really bad for Bill Buckner. He actually passed away pretty recently. Mm. But maybe the most impressive thing about that guy to me is his resilience and optimism. Because, he, I mean, he received death threats for years from Red Sox fans, which is awful. Mm-hmm. But he got traded the next year. 
and yeah, continually received until basically the Red Sox won in 2004 would continue to receive death threats from overzealous Boston fans. He came back and played for the Red Sox in 1991, just five years after that. Wow. Good for him. I like Bill Buckner. Sorry that he passed. Anyway, that's what Aqualad was probably up to. Rest in peace, Bill Buckner. Bad job, Aqualad. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, listeners. This was a real treat. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode more than a talking pony oh, that movie was so bad <laughs> it was i'm sorry Corey. it's okay if you would like to get into touch with us there are a couple of ways you can do that you can reach us via our post office box at tighten up the defense p.o box 20311 portland oregon 97294 or seeing as this is the future you can contact us electronically at ttwasteland at gmail.com we're also up in darn near every nook and cranny that the internet has to offer. Our information is slathered all over it like butter on a Thomas's English muffin. Corey's making a face at my use of the word slather. Yep. <laughs> Fair enough. But the information <laughs> remains nonetheless. So yeah, uh, we're on the uh, Tumblr and the Facebook and the uh, Tweetor and... Uh, you know, all the rest of the internet places you might expect to find us, and some you might not. I believe we are on LinkedIn and uh, I think Grinder still. You know where we are not? Where's that? That I think we should be is on a Wikipedia. What? Somebody make a Wikipedia page for us. You would fill it with lies and nonsense. I was trying to look up what uh, what Aqualad was probably up to because I was having <laughs> trouble. And I was like, darn it, it's not here. <laughs> ah, yeah. That would be nice if somebody feels like doing that. I know we have some uh, some zealous fans out there. That would be a nice thing you could do. Another nice thing you could do, you can leave us a review on uh, whatever podcast listening device you're using. I guess you should probably leave it on the listening app that you're using, not necessarily the device. Although, if you just want to write nice things about us on the cover to your iPhone, you could do that. Like it was, you know, your notebook cover in middle school. Just writing out up the defense like it's your new last name and we got married. That'd be cute. <laughs> Whoa. We won't marry you. We're a podcast. We can't do that. And also, I'm already married. Corey doesn't want to get married. Right. So, sorry. But... <laughs> <laughs> but you can still say nice things about us. We've gotten some really nice uh, reviews recently, which I appreciate. Yeah, thank you guys so much for... We read... All of them, and it warms the cockles of our hearts. Indeed. Uh, one we got recently is uh, Tighten Up the Defense is like two baby angels sent from heaven. Big recommend. That's awesome. It is. I mean, we told you guys to write that, and you wrote it. That's very nice. I like it when people do what I tell them to do. You sure do. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, get on that Wikipedia page, guys. But thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, we've gotten a couple of really nice reviews recently, and... Thank you. It it helps. It makes it easier for people to find the show, and uh, I like it when they do that. Another way you can show support is monetarily, which we certainly also appreciate. You can do that by checking us out at patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do donate, you get access to a bunch of free bonus material just for you, and there are some other rewards depending on your tier of donation. 
One of them gives you access to a bunch of videos that I make, which are reviews of classic comic books. And if you donate at any level, then you also get access to the monthly podcast that Lisa and I host called What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W because he's a duck. That's the full name of the show. That's our show about Howard the Duck comics from the 70s. We just recently talked about the ones that Kiss was in. Anyway, those are all the things that you can do and should do. I guess not all of them. There are many other things that you can and should do. You know, sniff a flower, hug a dog, make some good food. Yeah. Live, laugh, love. Do other things you see embroidered on wooden garden decorations. How <laughs> do you embroider on wood? I don't know. <laughs> if you'd like to send any wood embroideries, we have a P.O. box. That's true. Tighten up the defense. P.O. box 20311 Portland, Oregon 97214. Wow, that was fast. Yeah, and I got it wrong, too. It's 97294. Oh. Go slow to go fast. That's right. Hulk's rule. Mm-hmm. All right. Happy New Year. Yeah. Happy New Year. Yeah. 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 And they knew it. Okay, Corey just pointed out that I cut him off before he got to say bye. Corey, is there anything you'd like to say? Uh Uh-huh. Bye. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book. Sorry, I seem alarmed. I'll, I'll, this, you I'll said that really intensely, man. Sorry. Take it easy. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> man. Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book. I'm so smooth. <laughs> Every issue of a Teen Titans comic book. Mmm, every issue of a Teen Titans comic book. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs>